let us continue now our series in Zechariah as we come to the 11th chapter, the 11th chapter of Zechariah. You will recall that chapter 10 that we saw last week uh, was a very bright chapter uh, in which there was the prayer for the latter rain and the Messiah was described as the cornerstone and the peg and the bow and the ruler. And there is the promise of God's utilizing the power of Exodus to convert and keep his people. We come to chapter 11, and it's a dark chapter of judgment. A dark chapter of judgment, however, that will be followed by very bright chapters that speak of the atoning work of Jesus Christ and of his return. But this chapter is a chapter in large measure about the judgment of God upon Israel. Let us bow in prayer. Father, as we now come, we pray for the latter rain, which in ancient Israel had the symbolic and spiritual significance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in converting power. We pray for that latter rain that would not only convert, but that latter rain which nurtures and helps us to grow and mature. And how thankful we are for the Word of God and even those passages, Heavenly Father, that sometimes even believers rarely read, such as this one, or when they read, perhaps barely understand. We pray that we would cherish all of the Word of God. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that in our church there would be a love for the Word from the youngest to the oldest, and that in our culture there would be a return to the Word of God and to the Savior, for there have been days in which massively there were believers in our country. We pray for that again. We ask for mercy, O God, in the midst of wrath remember mercy. We humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. The 11th chapter of the prophecy of Zechariah, the 6th century B.C. prophet. The Word of the Lord. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter, those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them, for I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king and they shall 
crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff, favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as many as my wages, thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the contrast is stark. The first verses of chapter 10, God calls upon the people of God to pray for the latter rain, the promised blessing. In chapter 11, it begins with a devastating storm. And just as there is a connection between promise and prayer, so there is a connection between curse and disobedience. In chapter 10, verse 1, the Lord promised the latter rain. Here, God warns against hard-hearted disobedience. Ultimately, as we shall see, the storm goes out against rejection of the good shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we come to this passage, and the first thing we see is the storm in these first three verses. And it's powerful and beautiful in description. Open your doors, O Lebanon. In other words, let them swing on their hinges, be open to the conflagration, the tempest that will begin there in Lebanon the fire that devours the cedars. And the cedars having been devoured, the cypress needs now to tremble. If the cedar should not survive the storm, you, cider, cypress certainly will not. 
And even the oak is personified as wailing or called upon to wail. And joining their cry is the wail of the shepherds. In their fear of the storm, they wail in fear of the lions whose judgmental roar they hear as their habitat on the banks of the Jordan are swept away by this fire. This prophetic storm seems to pervade Palestine. It sweeps Bashan and indicates profound judgment ahead. If latter rain is promised blessing, then storm is the promise of judgment. And the broader context makes plain that the lament is that of the false shepherds who themselves howl as animals under the judgment of God. The storm breaks upon them because they have committed a crime of deepest dye. Well, what is that crime? What sin will bring this pervasive judgment of God? Well, this passage is a prophetic look down the corridors of time ahead to the day that the shepherds of Israel, political and religious, will reject the true shepherd of the sheep who would come into their midst and they had joined in to crucify the Lord of glory. Now, I think it must be said that as we look at a passage such as this, we simply have an anemic view of God. I mean, in the church, certainly in our culture, there is a very low view of who God is. We speak of grace, but we don't speak of sin. We want people to be converted. We don't tell them from what they need to be converted. We speak to them of mercy. We do not show them why they have need of mercy. And certainly we have ministers today who once actually proclaimed the judgment of God because it's a consistent theme in Scripture who will never open their mouths to mention it today because it's simply not politically correct. We have an anemic view of God. God is a God of grace and glory. God is a God of judgment and wrath. And the only way to escape that wrath is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, that this prophecy, looking down in time, sees that they would reject. And so we come to the second thing we see. The true shepherd rejected. And it's taking in verses 4 through 14. And what happens in the passage is that the prophet is given a commission. I don't have any indication that this is visionary. It could be, but I don't have any indication of it. The prophet is called of God to represent the Lord as the true shepherd of Israel and to enact to free the people from false shepherds with whom possibly even Zechariah was in conflict in his day, though I cannot know that. And so we see in verse 4, thus says the Lord my God become the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. And he's acting as God's representative to the people. That is his call. He is representing himself, the prophet is representing himself to the people as the good shepherd of the sheep. And to what time he points prophetically seems to me to be abundantly clear given the context as a whole. It's when Jesus came to the lost house of Israel 
and was rejected by them, and the punishment came furiously upon them in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which Jesus in Matthew 24 told them would come. In verse 4, he is told to feed and take care of the flock that is doomed to slaughter. Why doomed to slaughter? Well, already in the prophet's own day, back in chapter 10, verse 2, we see that they were following false prophets and false prophecies, and that because of this, they were without a shepherd, and they were wandering as lost sheep. Already in the prophet's day, But this prophet looks ahead, telescopes out, and they are doomed to slaughter because of their rejection of the Messiah, the true shepherd of Israel. As he looks ahead, remember that under the Roman invasion, a million and a half Jews will be slaughtered. And these are the ones who cried out, give us Barabbas, These are the ones who cried out, His blood be upon us and our children. Now, in light of this baptism this morning, can you imagine fathers and mothers screaming out for the crucifixion of the Lord of glory and calling out, His blood be upon us and our children? And that is exactly what happened. The generations hence, until the Lord gather and call them back to himself. The judgment of God, I want us to see, is a fearful thing. It's an awe-filled reality. The promised judgment we see in verses 5 and 6, those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. That's the promised punishment from the Lord. The prophet sees the flock in the hands of buyers and sellers, And the shepherds are cruel, and they do not care anything about the sheep, and they're out for themselves, and they they care nothing for the, the good of the flock. But the people are still responsible for following the false shepherds, and they seem to have the shepherds that they will deserve. And there are true sheep, of course, but they seem mostly in this passage to be goats. And in verse 6, he promises judgment on the people in their wickedness. And again, this looks ahead to the destruction by the Romans. Though the principle is true in any time and place. And oh, how doubly responsible are false shepherds that lead the sheep astray. But also followers, let me remind you, of false shepherds are responsible as well. During the Babylonian period, Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 50, verses 6 and 7, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them, and their enemies have said, 
We are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. And the result of that disobedience was their exile into Babylon. In these verses 5 and 6 in this chapter 11, the king is mentioned, and very probably the king here is Caesar. They had cried out, we have no... These are Jews formally covenanted to God who cried out, we have no king but Caesar. And their choice was willing and deliberate. They chose sin rather than Christ. The shepherds and the leaders choosing against the Savior. And because of this, God says, I will deliver none from their hand. And why this judgment? Well, do you remember the words of Caiaphas in John 11? Caiaphas who said, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that, that the whole nation not perish. We can find this man to be the scapegoat. He can, he's expendable so that, we can, so that we can retain our national situation as it is with Rome. And of course, the scriptures say he did not know that he was prophesying, but he was prophesying because it speaks of Christ who dies in the place of sinners. But nonetheless, with wicked hearts, they determined that Jesus must die. And in doing so, the nation was judged. And yes, the Lord determined the sacrifice of his son for sinners, but sinners were responsible for their hatred and rejection of him. Now, let me say in the midst of this, mercy will come. And we will see it especially as we move to the chapter next week, that mercy will come. And there are three passages that speak of the atoning work of the Savior in chapters 12 and 13. Mercy will come because God always has his people. And they shall look on him whom they pierced and mourn, and they will repent and they will believe. But nonetheless... This was the judgment of God. And may I remind you that every judgment of God in history points to the ultimate judgment that is to come when Jesus Christ returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. T.V. Moore has an excellent application of this for us in the culture in which we live. He makes the statement, wicked rulers are a curse of God on a wicked nation. Now, as religion, and when the old writers said religion, they mean the Christian faith. Now, as religion tends to prevent such rulers, or at least prevent their choice, there's an obvious connection between politics and religion. Church and state may and ought to be separated. Politics and religion ought not. For thus the state becomes exposed to the curse of God, and the political evil follows in the train of moral evil. That's what's happened here. Now, as the shepherd of the sheep, this prophet enacting the part of the good shepherd, he now takes up prophetically two staves, and we read about it in verse 7 and 8. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staffs, the one named Favor and the other named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. And so prophetically, he takes up these two staves 
And he points to the one who took up the role of the shepherd in the Trinitarian council in eternity past. And Zechariah takes up these two staves, probably the rod for beating off the predators and the staff, the shepherd's hook for keeping the sheep in tow, tending the flock that he loves. One staff he called favor, probably referencing God's favor in protecting Israel from Gentile enemies, which is going to cease because of this judgment. And another union, which speaks of the union of the Israelite people. Now, there is a note of sovereign grace and mercy here that I'm afraid doesn't show up in your translations. It may in some of your translations, but it doesn't. And the ESV is an excellent translation, very excellent. But here I think it, it, it missed something very important. It's found in verses 7 and 11. And verse 7 would be better translated something like this. So I tended the flock destined for slaughter, particularly the poor of the flock. And that is completely missing in the translation that we have before us. Oni Hatzon, it's very, very clear. It's right there in the Hebrew text. Now, the poor of the flock means the remnant. Those who were faithful even when Israel was not faithful, those who had faith in the coming Messiah, those who long for his coming, those are the poor of the flock. The, one, the ones for whom Jesus came and shed his blood and redeemed and would call and convert and bring to himself. The nation as a whole rejected him, but God has a people. Always he has a people. Don't forget that. And in verse 8, he speaks of the three offices that he would break, that he would destroy. And there are many different views on this, but my own thought is that Jesus holds the offices himself of prophet, priest, and king, and therefore whatever contradicts the good shepherd's office of prophet, priest, and king, he destroyed Some think that one month mentioned here is the culminating period before the crucifixion of the Lord, which makes sense to me. His soul lost all patience with them, and they loathed the precious Son of God, the true shepherd of Israel. Did you notice that at the end of verse 8? They detested me. They detested me. This is God in the flesh. The infinite, eternal, unchangeable God who became incarnate, who came down to reveal the Father. And they, he said, detested me. Detested me. And so we have God's judgment and his abandonment. The final abandonment of the Jewish people is found in that threefold disaster that is mentioned in verse 9, in which we have death, destruction, and devouring one another. And God would remove his protection of them and the nations. He would let loose their, their fury, verse 10. And the prophet broke the staff representing favor. But the humble of the poor of the flock, verse 11, it should be translated, gave heed and knew it was the word of the Lord. 
And remember that Christians remembered that the Lord Jesus admonished them that when Jerusalem would be surrounded, they should flee. And they did flee to Pella and other places and escape the Roman hordes in 70 AD. God's judgment on unbelieving Israel, but the poor of the flock, that small but faithful remnant, believed the word of the Lord. And no matter how small we may be in this world, no matter how small we may be in the professing church to say we believe the Word of God, young people cling to it, cling to this Word, because it is what it says it is, the Word of God. In verse 12, he records the Jews' final rejection of Christ. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So again, he's acting prophetically. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. If it seems good to you, if it's good in your eyes, what contempt they had for Christ. Had he not been a faithful shepherd, had he not looked on them with compassion, had he not shown love and mercy, had he not raised the dead, healed the sick, demonstrated the power of the kingdom, was he not about to go to the cross? All of this we know from the Gospels as we now read Zechariah, has not the Lord also been good to you, some unbeliever here today? Has he not been good to you in so many different ways, indeed in sparing you thus far from eternal judgment? Has he not been good to you in so many ways, and yet you still reject him? The price was 30 pieces of silver. Oh, the lordly price of 30 pieces of silver. Throw it to the potter was like our saying, throw it to the dogs. Now in Matthew 27, the passage that Pastor McDonald read to us this morning, the money that was given to Judas for betraying our Savior, he flung down in the temple And then it was taken by Jewish leaders to buy the potter's field. It was not lawful to put it into the treasury because it had on it the price of blood. They can take the blood of the Son of God. They can crucify the Lord of glory, but we can't put blood money into the temple treasury. How twisted and depraved our human hearts, how we rationalize our sin. Now, you may have noticed in Matthew, as Pastor McDonald was reading this passage this morning, that it ascribes this to Jeremiah. And that was not because Matthew had a, a, a lapse of memory and he forgot that it was in Zechariah, but because the heading of the roll that contained Zechariah and other books was headed by Jeremiah, a major prophet. 
And so anything that was referenced in that role would be ascribed to Jeremiah, meaning the role of Jeremiah. The same thing happens in Luke 24:44, when the Psalms is given as the name of the entire third section of the Hebrew canon. The same thing happens in the first verses of Mark's gospel. And so Christ is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and it is prophetically enacted by the prophet Zechariah 500 years, essentially, before it took place. Now, please keep your finger here and turn to Exodus 21. Exodus 21. Verse 32. You will recognize this verse because Pastor MacDonald has preached through these verses recently. But now notice verse 32, Exodus 21. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. And that is how our Lord was valued. They knew what 30 pieces of silver meant. These people were steeped in the Old Testament, though they didn't understand it. That's how they valued our Lord, not even the price of a gourd slave. And how we value the things that are not precious and how we do not value by nature as sinners. We do not value the things that are most precious. We don't want them. One of our Presbyterian fathers, T.B. Moore, said, men sometimes, listen, men sometimes now reject Christ for far less reward than 30 pieces of silver. And of course, with far more guilt than Judas. What about you? What are you holding on to as your price for rejecting the Son of God? And then in verse 14, he broke this second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. He broke the second staff. There will no longer be this union. He is saying, you rejected Christ. Now the nation is done for. Done for. Both of my staffs I have broken In verses 15 through 17, we see a third thing. Woe upon the false shepherds. Let's read the verses again. Verse 15. Then the Lord, this is Yahweh, the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm, 
and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. This is God speaking here. A shepherd will be in the land. A ruling power, perhaps, characterized by neglect and greed and cruelty. Is it Rome? Well, if so, not exhaustively. I think that what this is pointing to ultimately is what all false shepherds point to ultimately, which is a literal, personal antichrist. Because every antichrist in history points to that evil one that is to come. Woe upon the false shepherd, verse 17 tells us. Every false shepherd that neglects God's truth, that trounces upon the flock, whether magistrates or pastors, whatever it may be, fathers, call to shepherd your families, have God's awesome woe upon them, but especially that false shepherd that is to come. Of whom we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse, beginning with verse 8, of his coming and of his destruction. Let me begin with verse 1. 2 Thessalonians, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you that I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. But how could I, as a shepherd, read this passage? And as I did my best to understand it and to think of how to proclaim it, how could I not think I'm a shepherd? And this passage addresses shepherds. I'm called, though I will never do so faultlessly, I'm called to reflect the character and the love and mercy and grace and the teaching and care of the good shepherd of the sheep. And I think that this has application to every minister, every ruling elder in the PCA. You know, we have no call to improve upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
a faithful shepherd is going to proclaim the word as best he can understand it, as best as he can. I heard a minister just this week say, it was not a PCA minister, though I'm sure there are some that would have agreed with him. The gospel, he said, is justification by faith and social justice. So like the Judaizers of old, he is adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ social justice, which, by the way, is not about social justice, but it's a Marxist paradigm. That's improving on the gospel in this man's viewpoint. Improve on the gospel of redemption. Improve upon God's inerrant word. My brother called me this weekend. We were talking about some things, and he said, the gospel is the gospel. Yes, the gospel is the gospel. And we are called upon to hold to the old faith. And culture around us does not get the right to alter God's word. Because the spirit of Antichrist is among us and wants to take its seat in the house of God, among the people of God. My brother said to me, you know, life is like this. It's a circle. And there I am in the middle. And all these things are up here around the circle, including God. He said, that's not right. It's just not right. There should be the circle, and God is in the center. And then everything else takes its significance from the one who is in the center. My brother's a ruling elder in the PCA. I think that's good shepherding. What is true of your life? Is God in the center? Everything else finds its significance because of who is in the center. Or is God, his gospel, his word, just out there somewhere? You know, in 1662, there was an ejection of 2,000 of the best, most faithful powerful, loving gospel preachers that England had ever known and perhaps ever will. They were forced out of their pulpits because they refused to submit to an act of government that would have required the compromise of their consciences. And they went out and for many years later continued to be severely persecuted by the government. The Church of England has never recovered. England, I think, has never recovered. But they were faithful shepherds. They were faithful when they were in the pulpit and they were faithful to leave when they had to demonstrate to their congregations that they could not compromise conscience for the sake of the government, but they must uphold the Word of God. Well, in this passage, the false shepherd does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false shepherds in the church today. Now let me conclude this. Here to me is the remarkable thing. As we move to the next oracle, 
chapters 12 through 14, we find the Jews turning to Jesus. We find that they crucified the Lord of glory, and yet he remains the true and faithful good shepherd of Israel of all of his true people whom he has come to save. You know, a guest minister that was with us recently was struck when I prayed the pastoral prayer that I had prayed for the conversion of the Jews. But it's in our confessional documents that encourage us to pay, to pray for them, pointing ahead to Romans chapter 11, in which I do believe it is taught that there will be a large ingathering of the Jews in the latter day as they become a part of the church of Jesus Christ. So what about you? Do you see mercy in this passage? Do you see God's mercy that it's even been preached, the judgment of God has even been preached to you this morning? Is it a mercy because it's a warning? Do you see God's mercy here? Have you responded to the call of the good shepherd by the shepherds, the under-shepherds of the good shepherd of the sheep who have proclaimed to you the good news of Jesus Christ? Have you responded to the call of the good shepherd in the gospel through his under-shepherds, the ministers of the word? Or do you still have an obdurate heart? Soften your heart. Oh, may God soften your heart by grace. Have you rejected the good shepherd? Receive him now. Have you time and time and time again rejected his mercy? Have you even become gospel hardened, hardened under the preaching of the word of God? Let me give you good news. In a passage I was reading to my wife just this past week uh, from Dabney, as he was dealing with Psalm 108, he made this statement, God has mercy on the sin against his mercy. And so if you have sinned against his mercy time and time and time again, God has mercy on the sin against of mercy. May he show that sovereign mercy now and awaken your soul. Turn to him while you may. Amen and amen.